Welcome to our event. This event is brought to you by DataTalks Club, which is a community of people who love data. We have weekly events and today is one of such events. If you want to find out more about the events we have, there is a link in the description. Go there, click on this link, check it out. There are a few more events in, the, in our schedule. Do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. This way you will not miss any future streams like the one we have today. And last but not least, we have an amazing Slack community where you can hang out with other data enthusiasts. So if you are not there for some reasons, you can fix that by going there in the description, clicking on that link and signing up for our Slack. So during today's interview, you can ask any question you want. There is a pinned link in the live chat. Click on that link, ask your question, and I will be covering these questions during the interview. This week, we'll talk about data access management. And we have special guest today, Bart. Bart is the CEO and co-founder at Reito. Bart is on a mission to give data workers access to the data they need to do their job in a faster and safer way. Before co-founding Reito, Bart worked as a senior product manager in the data privacy area at Colibra. And Bart believes that for data to be liquid, trust has to be solid. And he will probably tell us later what does it mean for data to be liquid. Because I have no idea, like my imagination is uh, not that good to understand this metaphor. So welcome to our show. Hey, Alexei, thanks for having me. Super excited to be, uh, to be on the show today. So as always, the questions you will hear today are prepared by Johanna Bayer. Thanks a lot, Johanna, for your help. So before we go into our main topic of data access management, let's start with your background. Can you tell us about your career journey? Yeah, Alexei, so there was already a great summary before starting, right? So I was indeed a product manager of privacy at Calibra. That's where we also saw the challenge of scalable data access management. Now, Calibra was my first step in uh, the world of data and uh, software. Before that, uh, I was actually a consultant at Deloitte. You know, I was doing financial uh, risk management, and uh, but there I saw that you know the future is data. Everything evolves around data, and that's why I made the move to Calibra, where I learned that you know for data to be really successful and for organizations to be really successful they need to have that trust right and then that's why i started uh right together with dita my co-founder so what did you do as a consultant at deloitte we helped banks with you know accounting with valuation of uh, financial products there was a lot of mathematics uh, a lot of physics some models that we borrowed from physics but then gradually, I was also getting more and more involved in uh, data governance programs because this was right after the financial crisis. That was where, for banks, it was impossible to know how much uh, loans were defaulted, uh, what their exposure was to other banks. And then the European supervisor, European regulator, actually imposed data governance regulation on banks to improve data quality, lineage, and so forth. And in that way, I kind of evolved into the data governance space. So basically, there was a financial crisis, and then banks had some data, but it was a huge mess. Yeah. And what you did as a part of your job as a consultant at Deloitte was to help them make it less messy, right? Yeah, indeed. I, I mean, talking about a trauma, right? This is before you had all the hip data governance solutions that are out there now, right? Like, I mean, if you have to do data governance now, it's much more pleasant than when I had to do it. I had to draw lineage in like the, the office tool. I had to keep uh, data dictionaries in Excel. So this was before all the tooling was there. 
And I can tell you, it was not great. By the time my lineage was ready, it was already outdated. By the time my dictionary was ready, it was already outdated. And I had to go back. <laughs> so what is data governance, actually? Data governance, each time you mention the word data governance, you know, you see people frantically looking for the nearest exit to escape the, the conversation. It's a, a heavy loaded word, you know, but I mean, if I would have to summarize data governance, it's just, you know, all the activities that you do to create trust in the data that you're using, right? So your data workers, so data analysts, scientists, you know, they can trust that they're using the right data. They can trust that data has sufficient data quality, but also just your customers can trust that their data is being used in, in, in a safe way. You know, put it in that perspective, who doesn't want data governance, right? So despite, you know, the, the bad connotation that data governance has, if you're really serious about using data as a competitive asset, you need to create that trust and hence you need to do some of those activities. But the cool thing is that the perception is shifting. You got all these cool startups now, among others, right? All right. Um, that help you do data access or data governance in, in a more scalable way. Mm -hmm. Why does it actually have bad connotation? Like, why do people are searching for the fire exit when <laughs> you talk about that? Yeah, it's because, you know, how we used to do data governance, it used to be very centralized, right? A bit like in an ivory tower. Excel sheets that you talked about. Excel sheets. Yeah. So it's a couple of things. It's the awareness It was very hard. It's very, still today, very difficult to uh, make people aware in the organization of the importance of good data governance, right? But there's also the way that we used to do data governance. It used to be in an ivory tower, your policies, your standards uh, that you tried to impose on the organization. And it was always you know, bolted on data products, bolted on how we use data. And that creates a lot of friction, right? It makes that the data governance team is more policing than helping the business. Why does it happen? Like, is it because like somebody from, like for example, in your case, when you worked at Deloitte, you commission or whatever, some, some entity, governmental entity said, okay, you have a mess, banks, go fix it. And then like probably top management in a bank thought, just told others like, hey, like we have a mess in data, go fix it, right? So this was like a top down decision. And then uh, it was forced on people. And it was too difficult to implement, right? That's why it's, uh, it has this bad connotation. Yeah, indeed. We're learning, right? Data governance is going to transition. And how it used to be was indeed, it was top-down and forced on the organization. People had to do it. They didn't want to do it. And what's happening now is it's becoming more and more grassroots, uh, bottoms up, where data governance is being implemented or in, in the data ops process, right? Data engineers can integrated in their development process, making it so much easier and becomes more convenient. And also, they really see the value from it. So in that perspective, it's really evolving in a good way. So you mentioned a few things. So you mentioned that, like, the, I think called data lineage, that you used the office tools to draw. Then you mentioned that data dictionary was an Excel. But what these things actually are? And why did banks care about them? Like, why was it important for them to actually have these things? Why did they care about that? Like, how did it help to solve their problems? I don't think they really cared back then, right? This is 2009, 2010. It was basically the BCBS 239 uh, regulation that kind of imposed better processes, better data governance on banks. So they had to lineage, they, they just had to comply. They had to comply. 
that's why it was also top down. You had to do it. And nowadays, it's people are more and more becoming aware that you, you have to do it if you really want to use data. So that's a bit the mind shift that's happening uh, today. Mm -hmm. And this uh, lineage and data dictionary, what is this? The dictionary is basically just lock, right? Is, is a, let me say by, start by saying what a catalog is. A catalog is just a list of all your data sets that you have in your organization. And now just with their description, what you can find in a data set and also just the definition, right? Because customer, depending on where you are in a business, that word has a different interpretation, right? In finance, customer is somebody that's paying the bills, paying their, their invoices. Whereas in sales, a customer is somebody that sometimes is, is becoming a customer, right? So different definitions, you have to be sure what the definition is if you look at the report. And the lineage is like a, a traceability view, a view of how your data flows through your application and, and data sources. So it's like, okay, this data starts here, then there is this transformation applied to this data and this transformation, and this is how it ends in a report for the, I don't know, somebody from the top management. Yeah. You kind of can see all the uh, all the journey of the data. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. And uh, what does it have to do with data access management? Like what is data access management? Data access management, it's a weird conundrum. It's security, right? Data access management is really like a, part, a form of access management. It's, it's security. But how it has historically grown is that it's now a responsibility of the data governance teams, of the data teams, right? In this way, it's a bit weird. But to understand data access management, you got to take a, a step back. Access management used to be, we used to manage access at the application or database level, right? You had access or you did not. But once you had access, you had access to all the data in there, right? But now it's like cloud compute, cloud storage has completely revolutionized the way that we use data. And what you see is that you know, data teams are now like massively building analytical workflows or data science workflows, a cloud on public clouds, right? So by doing that, they're taking data from all these different systems and applications and moving it to one location, your lake, your warehouse, right? And by doing that, they lose the Chinese walls that they naturally have between the different source systems. Now, with all that data in one location and it being publicly assessed and accessed over the web, of course, you need to have these same Chinese walls in your lakes and the warehouses, right? Because, you know, you've seen all the data breaches. You open, you look at LinkedIn or, or the newspaper and there's data breaches in there. Uh, there's all the privacy regulations. Your customer awareness is, is increasing. So you need to have these same Chinese walls in your warehouse and in your lake. And that means managing access at the data set level. And, and that's data access management. Okay. And you mentioned that data access management, the responsibility of the data governance team. So what is the, the data governance team, actually? What do they do? Yeah, well, it kind of depends, right? So what we see is that in organizations that are really data-driven, right? So data-driven organizations up to 3,000 people, their data access management is still the responsibility of the data team, like the data engineers, right? And then for large organizations, you'll see that they start building out a data governance team and they will be responsible for like data access management or in certain cases when they're implementing like a data mesh, then it's the data owners who are responsible for uh, data access management. As for a data governance team, that is 
the nature of that team is kind of shifting, right? It used to be a dictionary and definitions, the lineage, the catalog, and so forth. But now it's also becoming more and more of a, a team that also you know, promotes data usage, does evangelization, and enables teams to use data in a more efficient way. So it's going more from monitoring and policing to enabling the business. Mm-hmm. So in smaller organizations, to 3,000 people, very small organizations, right? Yeah. So in these organizations, there, there is a team, I guess a central team of data engineers who move data from one place to another. And as a part of that, they implement some of the things we discussed, right? So it's just data engineers who do that. Like how much I'm thinking of data engineers, like whose core skills are cloud, all building ETLs, uh, Spark, Python, Docker, like all this stuff, like very technical people. How do they actually know about what they need to do? Like how do they need to educate themselves in, uh, in data governance, data access management? Because like it's, um, it doesn't seem like their core job or maybe it should be, but not at least from what I see, what typically data engineers do. That's the, the, what you're just describing is the core of the problem. Look, if you're a data engineer who is interested in data governance, you know, please investigate, please learn more. It's only going to improve your career, but it's not your core competence, right? Okay. You haven't studied or you haven't delved into data engineering to do data governance. And then that's a bit the challenge that we're seeing, and specifically for data access management, you know, as we're talking to a lot of organizations. You know, the data engineers, they have to do it because that's how it was, right? And then they get access requests they have to ex- or they have to manage access. And they have to do it because they know the technology. That's the only reason. They're not doing it because they know the business context or they know the policies. No, it's because they know the technology and they're using it. So they end up being the, the person that has to process the, the access requests. And that's not how it should be, right? You know, it's not their core competence. It's not what they've been hired for. They should focus on other things like managing infrastructure. And that's why you see that some larger organizations, indeed, they've realized that, hey, this should be with the data team. Let's give it to the data owners or the data governance team. Mm-hmm. So in larger or maybe more mature organizations, there is the central data team with data engineers. But in addition to that, there is this data governance team. Yeah, or a data mesh team where the responsibility is with the data owners. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what kind of skills these people in the data governance team should have to be able to do these things effectively? Where do they actually learn these things? So the skills, well, I'll I'll ignore the data owner for a moment, like the data governance team. The skills that you have is actually, I think the biggest skill is, so you don't need to know all the technology, right? So you don't have to be super technical. You need some kind of business affinity, right? But you also need to be able to enable and manage change, right? To be successful, people have to change, processes have to change. So you need to be a change enabler. That's probably the biggest skill you can have working in their governance is how can I change behavior? How can I make people aware? How can I evangelize? In terms of like hard skills, like pure knowledge, there's the um, the DM, DM book. So it's a Dama book of knowledge, I believe. And that's really like DM book. It's really like the Bible for data governance people. Okay. So who's, uh, like you said, like the skills that they need is uh, this change management. 
which does not sound like something that engineering, like that computer science uh, courses cover at any u- university I know. I guess uh, these people do not necessarily come from the computer science background. So what kind of background is um, actually best? Like where do they come from? Like you from the consultants, the consultant space or? I've seen data governance people with all kinds of backgrounds, actually. Engineering, legal, HR, marketing. Yeah. So it's not something you can learn in school. Like, I don't know, when you finish your school, you oh, let's go learn about uh, data governance, like and have a bachelor degree in that. Not that I'm aware of, but I wouldn't be surprised if that comes soon. I guess it would be a specialization, right? In some sort of other field. Yeah. It's really uh, fundamental. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody has, I was a coalesce in London last year, you know, a DPT conference. This is about analytics engineering, right? And there was the keynotes. And after the keynote, there was, I was with the co-founders and the product manager of DPT. There was room for question, question Q&A, right? And half of the Q&A were data governance questions. They were data governance related because these were analytics engineers. They were you know, building on DBT and they kind of, because they were focused on proving the value of data, right? The, proving the, you know, getting this initial data products out, those initial successes. And then they had success. They get more and more data consumers on the platform, more and more data products in there. And then you start seeing all those data governance issues. And, you know, data access management is, is really one of those challenges. That's why, like, you see that with, you know, the data teams that have proven value of data, they're getting more data consumers on the platform. They're successful in their self-service analytics. The number of data products is exploding. And then they're getting, having all these data access management issues, right? And it's same with data governance it applies to data access management. Now you got to gradually, you know, mature your data access management, right? You cannot just say, oh, stop the presses. Hold on, everybody stop doing self-service analytics. I got to improve access, my data access management. That doesn't work. That's too disruptive. And that's also like the approach for data access management should be like, just do it incrementally. Don't have like a big bang, but incrementally um, improve your data access maturity. And that's the same with data governance. And that's why you need like a good plan, a good change agent that allows you um, to do that. Mm -hmm. I understand. What about those poor data engineers who work in the smaller organizations that all of a sudden need to deal with uh, all these data access requests. I assume some of them might naturally become interested in data governance. So how do they actually get better at that? Like, uh, do they pick up the book you mentioned in the book or how do they do this? There's a lot of content out there. There's also like several uh, Slack communities. There's a data mesh Slack community. There's also, the name escapes me, there's also data governance a Slack community where you can go on. So definitely, communities and, and literature out there that, that can help you. Yeah. I think there is a book from O'Reilly, right? That is called Data Governance. Mm-hmm. Can be, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think we had authors like a couple of years ago, this podcast. So if anyone is listening and did not check that, maybe you can go and check, like just type data governance because we discussed it in much more details. So when is organization large enough to actually start thinking about it, that data governance team? Or it's more a question of maturity, or how does it happen? Yeah, I think it depends on several factors, but I think 
so what I see in practice is the, this is for organizations that are very serious about data, right? So they have customer data and they want to use it for as a competitive asset, asset, right? So for better insights, better services, better products, and so forth. Then you have to really have the basis of data governance to become uh, successful at that. Now, this is typically as of a certain size. If you're small, right, and you can just talk to each other over the computer screen or over Slack as we're working from home now. But as of a certain size, if you're serious about data, then you really need to invest somewhat in, in, in data governance. Because that, as I said, is like the fundamentals to become successful with data. Mm -hmm. Like let's say a startup with 10 people, do they need a data governance thing? No, I don't think at that stage you need data governance, right? You all have the same definition of the data. You understand the data flows. Even for data access management, you can just one person manage it. It's when you start getting more data consumers on the platform and when you start getting more data products in there and you start feeling like the issues, like people not trusting the reports anymore, data quality issues, right? You see like the trust disappearing, the trust fading. You get a lot of ad hoc requests. You know, we have to kill a lot of fires. That's when, you know, these are all symptoms of a lack of data governance. Uh, let's say if we have data issues and we already lost the trust in data, isn't it too late now to, to do this? Like, should have we tried to prevent it? Yeah, indeed. The priority is often let's prove the value of data first, right? In theory, yeah, it should have been prevented. In practice, I mean, if you have a limited budget and your responsibilities, you know, prove that there's value in data analytics, you're going to focus on that. And when that takes off, you're going to improve your data governance. That's how it happens in practice. I would love to see it the other way around, but that's how it is. So I guess for a startup with some people, it's like at most two teams, right? Working together. But let's say if there is one team that is producing data and then there are multiple teams that is consuming this data, the moment uh, you have some sensitive data that only one team consume and others could not, I don't know, some personal identifiable data, right? Then you need to start thinking, okay, like how do we make sure that this team can have access to this data and this team cannot? Right. And then you need to start thinking, like, how do we keep this organized? Like, how do we know, do not go, I don't know, mad thinking about all these things? Because, like, there could be another field, another sensitive sort of information that maybe just one team can consume. And it's a different team, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think you need data access management before you need data governance team. That's for sure, right? Like, if you're, as soon as you have a data warehouse or a lake and you have sensitive data in there, be it customer data or like business critical data, like very sensitive intellectual property. Of course, then you need data access management. Uh, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. And then, like you said, if you start bringing on more data consumers, then you really need it, but then you need to do it in a scalable way. Then you need to have like automated processes, better insights, better collaboration. And that's, that's when you have to start looking at, you know, taking that responsibility and, and the processes out of the core data team and then put it either with the data governance team that typically around that size starts you know developing you start getting your first data steward data governance person or push it to the, the data owners but if anything data access management that's one of the things when you work with customer data one of the data governance like one of the parts of data governance that you have to start as early as possible with and you mentioned the word process many many times and I'm wondering how should a good good enough process look like look like 
if we talk about data access management. Let's say we have producers of data, we have consumers of data, some of the data is sensitive, so not everyone should have access to that, and one team wants to have access to this data. Like, How do they go about consuming, starting to consume this data? Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize I was talking about process that much. Uh, I must be, I must be getting old. Three or four <laughs> times, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are many processes in data access management, right? You have like the access request, the approval. You have the regular review. Uh, you have revoking access and so forth. I think it starts with like good roles and responsibilities, right? Ideally, and this is for somewhat larger organizations, you need like a good collaboration between the data owners who know the business context of the data, who know what it means. Ideally, they approve access, they manage access and review it. So the data owners, they work with the data engineers, they know the technology, they have to implement the controls. And then if you have a data governance team, they should also be involved because they know the regulatory context within your working. So they know the privacy and security standards and the policies in the organization. And ideally, you have a collaboration between these three. And what we've seen is that you know, when data access management does not scale, it's because the collaboration between these three has broken. Okay. So I'm thinking it's a bit abstract to me still. Um, let's take an example. So for example, we have a use case, I don't know, churn prediction, right? So we have, uh, we're in a company, we have some clients, it could be like a usual uh, internet SaaS company, right? So there is, there is a customer team who manages the, all the information about the customer, like their contact details and so on. And there is, let's say, a marketing team that wants to understand if somebody is about to churn, then we want to try to win them back by offering some discounts, right? So the marketing team wants to implement this churn prediction. And they need access, the marketing team needs access to the email field, right? So then how do they go about this if we have proper data governments and data access management tools? You mentioned like there are things like access requests, approval, revoke, right? Like it's probably... <laughs> They ask for a request, right? How, how does it happen? Yeah, so ideally, there's this concept of pushing, pushing governance left, right? So ideally, when the data engineers have created the initial data set with the, was it customer email in there, right? Mm, yeah. They have tagged that data set in the customer email, and they've also defined the roles that can access that data set. So that's the customer team, right? So the data engineers in the team that make this data available. Yeah. It's their responsibility to document this data, to say which fields, which information is sensitive, which is not, and who can access what, right? Yeah, that's ideal. And, and that's when you start look, moving towards data mesh, data contracts, right? So the data producers in the sales team, they say, this is data set contains customer data. These are the roles that can assume it. And then the marketing team, they basically, when they need that data set, they find it in a catalog, right? And they say, hey, I need access to this data set, email field, I need it for churn analysis. So they log an access request with the purpose churn analysis, right? Mm -hmm. And then... Access request is like they say, okay, this is the field we're interested in, but we don't seem to have access to this. Please give us. And this is the reason why we need it, because we want to do X, Y, Z, right? Yeah, and then uh, ideally also like we only we need it for three months or we need permanent, but you also add like the time dimension. And then if you have a data owner in the sales domain, they approve it. And then in ideal case, 
permissions are automatically updated. And then if that approval is for three, four months, after that period, the permissions are revoked. And that revoking access is, is really important. And what we've seen, and a great deal, and this is pure data access management, not data governance, but one of the issues that we see with data access management is like excessive privileges, role explosion. It becomes way too difficult to see who has access to what, or you have a lot of excessive users with excessive privileges. That's because access is always granted and not revoked. And I think now, uh, more than ever with public cloud and all the data breaches and the privacy regulations, but also the upcoming security regulations in Europe and the same in the, in the States need those concepts of least privileged access management. So like the time-bound access is also like part of the, the best practices, I would say. And you're based in Europe, right? In Belgium. Yes. Especially important to know about all these things. And in Belgium, the European Commission is actually there, right? So it's like European Parliament. Yeah. So all these laws about data privacy are actually made somewhere near you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are my neighbors. <laughs> like, do you go to have, I don't know, grill with them? They're my neighbors, but like, my friends are more other entrepreneurs. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I guess in this case, if I request a temporal access, if I say, hey, I want to do a proof of concept, I want to see like if our churn prediction model is actually useful, then you request access for three months. And then if it's granted, then automatically whatever data access management tool we use should, after three months, revoke it, right? Look at the development cycle, right? So typically it's uh, like a data engineer or a data scientist. Data scientist in, in this case has to build a new model. They request access to the data to build that model, they get it for a couple of months. When the model is built and it can go into production, data scientist doesn't need that data anymore, right? I mean, and then we give access to the service account or the workbench that needs the data for the churn prediction model and uh, access for data scientist has been revoked. And I'm always talking about privacy and security. You have many regulations, indeed, why you have to limit access. Uh, you also have Sarbanes-Oxy and so forth. But also, it just it prevents you from making mistakes, right? It's like for a lot of people, you know, having the guardrails that prevents them from like deleting a production table or whatever, mm -hmm. it can also give a peace of mind. There's a lot of benefits in just like working with temporary access and knowing then that like when I do something wrong because I didn't have my coffee in the morning, I mean, I have my peace of mind that you know, that is somewhat limited to the access that I have. Mm -hmm. Well, as a data scientist in the past, I can think of ways where it could potentially go wrong, maybe there's a solution. So for example, okay, we implemented a proof of concept, we decided to go ahead with this, it's in production right now, and I no longer have access to this data, right? Because why do I need access to emails of the customers? But something happens with our model. It gets broken, right? And then I need to go and debug it and figure out what's wrong. And then if I don't have access to this data, how do I actually debug it? Yeah, yeah. I don't want to go too much into the Rito solution because that's we cover all that stuff with Rito and I don't want to make it a sales pitch, right? But there, ideally, you get access to do your investigation, right? And it's a process of currently the, what is broken is a process of requesting, getting access and revoking access. It, it, the process does not work. And that's why as a data scientist, I'm sure in your experience, uh, I'm sure you've had admin credit rights, right? They were just like, hey, Alexi, leave me alone. Here are admin rights. Do your thing. Right. And that's because the process is broken. Right. We just have to improve the process of requesting, approving, and, and revoking access. 
such that at all times you only have access to the data you need, whether it's to build a model, to run a model, investigate data quality issues or why the model has broken, and nothing else. But just getting, requesting an X and getting the model should be easy, right? And automated where possible. Um, so that all the time, you, it's just limited to what you really need. Well, in defense of the company where I worked, we actually had a data protection officer. So I was not always given admin rights. <laughs> Maybe speaking about this data protection, I remember having a discussion with that person, like when I needed to access, yeah, I think some sensitive information like emails, like all of a sudden I got to know this person, data protection officer, because he was pretty interested in why I need this data and I needed to explain him. Yeah. Yeah. So do you see this role often, this data protection officer? I see them as an important stakeholder. So I see companies I was talking to that where you see that the data access management projects actually started because DPO was concerned or the CISO is concerned. I mean, it's a responsibility. It actually, like, it's an organization's responsibility to keep their customer data private and secure. A good example is uh, Optus in Australia that has been breached a couple of months back. They lost 10% of their customer base after that breach, right? So, I mean, customers are becoming more and more privacy aware. So as an organization, of course, you have to take that responsibility. But it's often driven by the DPO who has to comply with privacy regulations. They have to say to the supervisor, right, they have to report on that. They have to tell the supervisor and the customer, hey, we only use the data for the purposes that we've agreed upon. And then the CISO has to make sure that there are no data breaches, no data leaks. They have to prevent unauthorized access. And, you know, for operational systems, that's pretty straightforward, right? But when you look at your data warehouses, your data lakes, that's where, you know, they lose sleep because you got all that data. It's messy. It's a lot of data. You got a lot of change. And there you have to you know, prevent unauthorized access. And, uh, you know, data scientists, data analysts, data engineers, they have to do their job. They need that access. And they have to, on the other hand, you have to comply with privacy and security regulations. And that balance, you know, doing your job, being productive with data, giving your company that competitive edge with data while, you know, keeping it secure and private, that's a, a very difficult battle. And then creates that friction that your DPO had a previous job, like being like, hey, what do you need the data? Do you really need it for that purpose? Can you explain me? That was his job. Like, he would ask that these questions all day long. Yeah, and that sucks. It sucks for everybody, right? Because then you have to explain them. They're, not all DPOs are very technical. They're often more working with uh, legal text, with policies. So there's this like miscommunication and it just, it's policing. So that it shouldn't be, it should be automated as much as possible. The collaboration between the DPO and the data team should be streamlined as much as possible. You need to have, give them the insights and just like enable it, right? Rather than policing. I was also curious, you actually mentioned two things. So you, we talked about DPO, but you also mentioned CISO, C-I-S-O, whatever. Yeah. So maybe you can tell us a bit about these roles, like who are these people usually, what's their job is, and why do companies actually employ them? Like why do they care about them? Yeah, they're typically as of a certain size. So when you're working with sensitive data and you're as of a certain size, you will typically see a data privacy officer or a DPO and uh, a CISO or Chief Information Security Officer. What I've seen is that they've grown towards each other, right? So they used to be like two completely separate entities. Now they collaborate more closely. And that's because a DPO has to rely on a CISO. 
what does the DPO do? It makes sure that you know the data that you as a customer give to organization is only used for the purposes you've agreed upon, right? So if I give you my data to you know for billing, for sending invoices, and I say you cannot use it for marketing, I hope I don't get marketing emails from you. That would create a trust breach. That's not always that big, but you also have like an authorized access or used by third parties, by hackers. And that's where the CISO comes in. So CISO makes sure that no unauthorized users, no unauthorized people can have access to your data. So they keep everything secure. Your DPO makes sure that uh, the data is being used in a way and in the context that you as a customer can rightly expect. Yeah, thanks. I noticed that we have three questions. I think it's about time we covered that. Question from I.O. I hope I pronounced your name correctly. So the question is, how to deal with access management in a data mesh setup with sensitive data? Usually data producers own it, but for sensitive data, even producers shouldn't access it. I don't know, maybe we covered it a little bit, the first part at least. Yeah, yeah. Hey, that's a great question. Maybe also like not everyone knows what data mesh is. Maybe you can introduce it in like a, just a couple of sentences. Yeah, great question, Io, by the way. So first off, data mesh, it's a new framework that comes from ThoughtWorks, from Jamak, and it basically applies like best practices from DevOps and data governance and applies it to data. There are four principles. I don't know them by heart. I think it's data as a product, domain thinking, self-service analytics, and federated computational governance. Not not, not 100% certain. A plug uh, that we had Jamak also in one of the uh, uh, interviews, so you can check it out. Uh, just maybe enough, uh, I think maybe it's enough information to, for those who don't know what it is. If you're curious, just go and check that one. Indeed, a much better job than I just did. But that's a great point, Yobe. So like you said, often it's uh, the data producers or the data owners that decide on who can have access to what. But there's this point of sensitive data because, you know, that has to comply with privacy regulations, security standards and support. The way that we see that right to is, that should still be controlled by your central data governance team that knows the regulations, knows the privacy standards, and should be as much as possible automated. And there we're looking at, you know, column level masking or row level filtering, where based on the central policies, these columns are automatically masked. So a good example is like marketing has a data set, customer data. They say, based on our policies, well, John and Mary can access this data set. I approve access. But in that data set is like payment card information or home address. Then there should be a central policy that says like these columns should always be masked. And that's something that should be automated as much as possible. We call this, by the way, we call this the, the Conway Pinson movement where both teams collaborate on that topic. Great question. Yeah, another question from the same person. And we spoke already about this. Um role explosion, right? When we have too many roles, maybe when we forget to evoke access. And the question is, do you have any recommendations for following the least privilege access principles without filing into the role explosion problem when there's a role dedicated for each private data set? There's a role for each data set, right? I see. Tough question. So what I've seen is that role explosion typically comes when your roles diverge from how the business uses data. So a couple of things there is like we see work with organizations that have like the role inheritance. They have the data roles that give you low level permissions on data sets. 
read permissions, write permissions, and so forth. And then you have the functional roles that correspond to your roles in the business that you can then assume the data roles, right? So that's one way. Another reason for role exposure is like the access requests, right? So people request access for, you know, building an ML model, for investigating issues. There's no role that matches that request perfectly. So what you typically do is then just create quickly a new one and then forget to revoke it. So I think like regular reviews and alerts for unused roles will definitely help with that. So I think like having like the, the role inheritance where you have roles that match the business and roles that match the data combined with regular reviews and alerts on unused roles, I think that should should help. Thank you. Makes sense. And uh, another question is, uh, and I've been sort of guilty of that too. Oftentimes data owners do not know if the data is sensitive or not. And, or maybe they accidentally made a mistake. So how to make sure that we have the right process to catch PII data, personal identifiable information? Because I happened to be a data owner at some point uh, and producing data. And then I just didn't realize that some of this data is actually private, sensitive. Right? And then uh, somebody pointed out, they discovered they accidentally, there was no process for that. And then of course I went to our data catalog and then marked this uh, field as sensitive. So is there a process for that? Like how do you deal with these kind of problems? Yeah, that is really the best way to address this is by integrating governance in your data ops process. So once I was talking to this guy, like he used to lead a data engineering team at Woolworths in Australia, like 200 people. And he said, you know, when I started integrating data governance in my data ops, the effort became 1% of what it used to be, right? So as you're creating data product, you add the tags. And then based on those tags, you can have like an automated decision process that masks sensitive data. So ideally, yeah, the, the data is tagged. That's the ideal scenario. And then data is automatically masked based on, on those tags. But of course, you always need like a, a regular review, right? So I think having good insights in who has access to what, what are the usage patterns and you know, showing that in an easy to consume way will also be very important to catch issues like, like that. But I guess the question was also about like, if I accidentally mark data as non-sensitive, even though it is sensitive, is there a way to automatically detect that? Or like, it's just, we need to work on processes. Maybe we just need to have regular reviews. Uh, so about the tagging itself, right? I think they're looking at like, there's now this concept of active metadata where the data is uh, actively or the metadata is actively managed. Like you have a lot of automation there, models that help you with the tagging. Not really my field of expertise, but I think there are several solutions out there that help you, you know, with the automated data tagging and that could help you with that. Mm-hmm. It's like maybe, well, with emails, addresses, phone numbers, IP addresses, you know, geographical coordinates. It's kind of obvious, right? Like they follow more or less the same pattern. So there are really automatic ways to detect that. Yeah, so the, the, these models that are out there, they can indeed you know, use the regex patterns to detect sensitive data, but they can also use as at the context of the data itself, uh, look at the actual values and add tags in that way. And there's a whole field that has been developing in that space over the past couple of years. So. Some of that are even open source, so definitely some uh, solutions out there mm-hmm. to help with that. Now I want to talk about implementing all everything we talked about. What I typically see in companies 
is we have tools like Terraform that, uh, like, or even before Terraform. So we have like all these clouds, like for example, AWS cloud. And in AWS, we have this thing called IM, which is identity and access management. Yeah. yeah. Right. And then what typically happens is we use this uh, infrastructure as code tools, such as Terraform or CloudFormation, all that. So that there is like this infrastructure team that manages this code base. And if I need access to something, I need to poke these people saying, hey, can you please, like I have a role or my team has a role. And then like, I need to, like, I want to have access to this S3 bucket. So I need to poke them first. And then they say, okay, we're too busy. Just create a pull request to this thing. So then I go and I need to manage to, to make sure that I can actually, you know, run this thing on my computer. And then maybe I add this to the Terraform file and I create a pull request and they take some time to review this pull request. Somebody needs to approve it. Then somebody approves it. Then somebody needs to apply it. And then like maybe one month later, I finally have access if everything goes smoothly. I guess that's not the most ideal scenario, right? But from my experience, I see that often this is how it starts. That's correct. That's indeed how it starts. I think it's a good way to get started is with Terraform because most data teams, like I said a bit earlier, right? It's all about you know, proving the value first. So you're really focused on getting those first data products out, you know, proving the value of data analytics, getting more data consumers on there, more data products in also on the platform. And then that initial Terraform script that you used to manage access and request and process to request access to Slack or email, they start breaking, right? It doesn't scale. That's because, you know, one, it's too technical. So for data owners to take ownership, right? They can't go in, in, the, in the Terraform code and start managing access. So it keeps on being with the core data team. So too technical. If by the time you have a DPO or CISO, there's no way of reporting, there's no insight, there's no visibility. There's hardly any automation, right? So you cannot automatically approve or revoke access. And trees, like an issue I heard at the tech scale-up was that they had state drift in their access controls, right? So they had access defined in Terraform, and it was different from what actually was in Snowflake because other engineers would just directly update the provision in Snowflake. Mm. So I think it's a great way to get started. It just gets you started. You don't have to worry about access management that is covered. As of a certain scale, that's when you start looking at more like vendors like Right to help you manage permissions and the ways we just build on top of that, right? So I really believe in access as code as much as possible. So like pushing governance left. My vision is like, let's just keep defining data products as code and the roles that can access your data products as code, but then everything access requests, the management of the reporting, let's do that in a dedicated tool like Right. So where everybody can go to request access and your data engineers are just taken out of the process and can focus on cool stuff and not on processing access requests. Yeah. So um, I see that we don't have a lot of time, like five minutes. I still want to talk about Raito. Yeah. But I'm just wondering, so engineers being engineers and I'm one of them too, I'm like why do I need a vendor if I just can implement this thing myself? It's so much fun, right? Yeah, yeah. The building is indeed fun. The maintaining uh, sucks. Yeah. Uh, you have to update your connectors all the time. It becomes costly. But then also just for your employer, right? Security, it is important. And I've seen several cases where the engineer that built it left and just nobody maintained it. He left with all the knowledge. They get huge key person risk. And on something as important as data access management, it's not ideal. Mm -hmm. So how do you solve this problem? What do you actually do? Yeah. 
So the biggest challenge with implementing data access management is the change, right? People have to, you know, change their behaviors, change their process, and maybe even tools. So the way that we do it is by, you know, limiting the change that it needs or gradually improving data access management. And the way that we do that is by, you know, we let you start from your as-is situation. So there's no big bang change. You don't have to disrupt everything. We come in and with our, we have a free version of the product. You integrate it with your data warehouse or your data lake. And from the first day, you instantly see who has access to what, what is the usage, right? And then from that place, so from your as-is, you can gradually implement or improve your access controls through collaboration, the insights, and automation. And that is like the opposite of what the other vendors do, which is like, okay, first define your policies, your metadata, and then push down all that change, and it breaks a lot. There's a lot of change all at once. So that big bang is something we don't believe in. We believe in like the gradual implementation. Are there open source alternatives? Like if somebody is not ready or somebody just want to make sure they see all the code, are there alternatives for this? So we have our, our right to CLI that is open source, that you can manage ah, access okay. code. Uh, now we have our first uh, contributor who is building out uh, the, the report capabilities. So super happy for that. In terms of other open source, what we see all the time is, uh, is Terraform. Yeah, but Terraform has all these issues that we talked about, right? Yeah, indeed. Well, since you have an open source thing, we have a thing called Open Source Spotlight, where we invite open source authors to demo their tools, and you are more than welcome to demo Rhydo CLI. Awesome. So we should organize uh, something. I think that's all we have time for today. So thanks, uh, Bart, for joining us today, for sharing all this information with us. And thanks, everyone, for joining in, for listening, for asking questions. And uh, yeah, I guess that's all. Thanks, Bart. Thanks, Alexei. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, see you soon. I guess I don't know if it will be you or somebody else from your team presenting right to CLI, but I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, that will be our DevRel. Okay, that works. Okay. Awesome. Take care, Alexei. Bye. See you. Bye bye.